With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 108th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners in the world. I sincerely appreciate you in all of the now 77 plus countries where you are located. Thank you for sending all your messages. Please keep them coming. My February Privacy Professor Tips message was published on January 31st. Sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com or privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and submitting your email in the box on your screen. They are free, as they have always been since 2005. Today, I'm going to be answering a wide range of questions I've received from my listeners in the past three or so years. Many of them, though, have come in within the past few months, and there's just so much going on in security and privacy. I was looking through them recently and I realized that I haven't done a questions and answer episode for quite a while. So we're going to do that today. And I want to start out with a question that I received from several folks here just very recently. So several folks asked me about how each year I talk about being able to have an official proclamation of Iowa Data Privacy Day. And they wanted to know, did I get this proclamation passed again this year? Well, thank you to the many folks who asked about this. And yes, I am happy to report that after I worked with the Iowa Governor's Office annually for the 14th year in a row now. And it's been through three different governors of two different political parties. Yes, they have once more supported my request for a formal proclamation of Iowa Data Privacy Day on January 28th. Now, the Iowa holiday is held in conjunction with International Data Privacy Day, and it's better known outside of the states as Data Protection Day, which was originally known as European Data Protection Day, and it was introduced by the Council of Europe in 2007. Now, two years later, on January 26, 2009, The U.S. House of Representatives unanimously declared January 28 as National Data Privacy Day. And for its part, the U.S. Senate declared National Data Privacy Day to be January 28 in 2010 and 2011. So, you know, it's one of those things, I think, once they proclaim it, they kind of assume that that's going to be it for every year after that, although for some reason the Senate did it two years in a row, which is fine, you know, it brings uh, more awareness to privacy. If you're curious to see it, I actually possess all 14 of the proclamations on the parchment paper that's large, you know, legal size, a little bit larger than legal size, 
and it has the uh, actual gold seal on it and the signatures. Uh, you can see a, an image of that, a scanned image of that signed proclamation with Governor Reynolds' signature, the Iowa Secretary of State uh, Paul Pate's signature and the official gold seal at privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. Now, if you're wondering about the verbiage, I actually draft the content for this each year. And I always start with the previous years and I just update the verbiage to reflect changes in tech and new and emerging privacy concerns because every year there's always something that new that comes up right uh, throughout the year. So you'll see that it's slightly different in verbiage than it was last year. If you read that one, um, those are all out online as well. And I'm curious, what did the rest of you do for International Privacy Day on January 28th? Did you know about that even? Or maybe you are now looking at that as International Privacy Week in many places. So did you do something special for that? Did you hold an event? Did you participate in an event? Please send me an email and let me know. And, you know, I might uh, mention it on our next show that we do for March. Okay, next question. Oh, this is a timely one. This is a question from Ivan. Ivan asked, how do you think the Dobbs decision was leaked last year from the U.S. Supreme Court? So let me provide some background for listeners who may not know what this is about, especially those of you in other parts of the world. In May of 2022, the draft decision of Justice Samuel Alito, who's one of our Supreme Court judges here in the U.S., that draft decision of his opinion on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, this was basically arguing for the Roe decision to be overturned, the Roe decision, Roe versus Wade, from 50 years ago now. And basically, that uh, that found or declared that um, a right to body body autonomy and uh, different types of health care decisions, such as abortions, was a constitutional right. Well, this uh, leaked opinion basically also uh, had a new opinion overturning that decision from 50 years ago. And it was reported Uh, in the news in in May what this draft was and everyone was like how did this get outside of the Supreme Court who leaked it and that that was the word that was always used leaked who leaked this draft it wasn't the final opinion but it was the draft opinion of this one judge Alito who leaked this to the public months before the final decision was published, or actually well in advance, a couple of months before, not months and months, just a couple, but still, who leaked it. The court then released its final decision about Dobbs on June 24th, and it pretty much reflected the same verbiage as the document that was leaked from uh, the the decision that Justice Samuel Alito had drafted. Now, there was a lot of concern between May to the end of May to end of June when it was, you know, published as the final decision. It's like, how did this get out there? It, it had never happened before. You're not supposed to allow, the Supreme Court's not supposed to allow draft opinions out because, number one, those draft opinions might not be reflective of what the final opinion is. And number two, you know, they they had concerns, and it's always been a long concern that if drafts get out, then there might be actions by the public, by different groups uh, who do not like what the opinion said or did like to try to 
then change what that opinion would be. And that pretty much happened. Um, So the Supreme Court launched an investigation, and the investigation was performed by the Chertoff Group. It was into how this so-called leak occurred. And after months of what they call, quote, thorough investigation, end quote, and I'm sure it was thorough, uh, a 20-page report of the findings of the investigation was released on January 19th, so not that long ago. The investigation team interviewed almost 100 employees, and they found, uh, and these are employees who support um, the justices who are on the Supreme Court. They found that 82 of them had access to the draft opinion. Now, despite the efforts to determine how the draft got out to the public, the, quote, team to date has been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence, end quote. And the Supreme Court indicated the investigators will continue to follow up on a few outstanding leads. There were also some recommendations made by the Chertoff Group for preventing similar so-called leaks going forward. And these recommendations were to, one, restrict distribution of hard copy versions of sensitive documents. Number two, restrict email distribution of sensitive documents. And oh my gosh, how many times do we see emails getting sent to the wrong people or way too many people or being forwarded without removing attachments? I can only imagine what could have been the case there if that was indeed one of the ways or a way or the only way it got leaked. But anyway, that was the second uh, recommendation. Three, to use digital tools to control the use, editing, and sharing of sensitive documents, and for limiting access of sensitive information on outside mobile devices. So that sounds to me like they're saying maybe personal devices uh, were found to be used during their investigation. And of course, all these are really good ideas, but... I don't see a few additional precautions that I would have expected to be on this list. So, for instance, they did not address the very real and very widespread vulnerabilities, other vulnerabilities of the humans involved. And you cannot completely remove human actions and human decisions and human understanding and general lack of knowledge about how data is often exfiltrated from organization. You have to consider that when information gets outside of where it was supposed to be kept within a secure area. So let me give you an example. I spent many weeks at the end of 2017 and beginning of 2018 flying out of here in Des Moines, Iowa, where I live, uh, from our airport on Sunday afternoons and returning on Thursday nights. And I flew directly to the greater uh, Washington, D.C. area, and I was doing proof-of-concept cybersecurity and privacy work at one of my government agency clients. Now, guess who some of the others were who flew at those same times on the same flights as I was on since it was a direct flight to Washington, D.C.? Well, it was many of the federal senators and House representatives from Iowa, and occasionally there were some from adjacent states who, you know, might have been visiting their relatives here or whatever, but they were typically those who lived and or had offices close to Des Moines. And Des Moines is the capital of Iowa. So, you know, it's someplace where we see a lot of politicians all the time. And during these flights, I actually sat by 
some of the politicians, some of the lawmakers uh, on those flights to and from D.C. During this time, I noted a lot. Uh, Well, I'll say multiple, what I would call sloppy security or loose security with how they handled their laptops and tablet computers and their smartphones, how they didn't really protect the screens of those devices oftentimes. Upon two occasions, I actually shut the laptop that belonged to a senator who would stand up when we were in the boarding area waiting for the flight to start boarding. When people would come over to start to speak to him, a lot of times he'd stand up and start talking with them. And it was funny how he would always kind of drift away as more people came up to speak with him. He would drift away from where he had been sitting with his laptop on the chair in the boarding area. And he had left his laptop there with the the screen open. I could see his screen. And it clearly, it did not have a screensaver enacted. So what I would do, I would reposition myself and I'd push the top of the laptop close. I, you know, people should not be seeing what a senator of the United States has on his computer. And then I would kind of make sure that people milling about kind of looking at that computer seeing it was sitting there unattended, I would just kind of keep my eye out just to see how far away he was drifting from his seat and make sure that no one tried to to snatch his laptop. One time, I even had to shout at the senator as, well, I didn't shout at him, but I called out to him because he he started to board the plane without getting his laptop. But I had to remind him, hey, your laptop's still over here. <laughs> Make sure you come and get that and take it on board with you. In other instances, with other politicians traveling uh, from other states off, you know, in the D.C. airport where I was at, there were always members, many members of Congress on Sundays and on Thursdays. And, you know, you could hear them speaking about confidential topics, um, where others could hear them, not only in the gateboarding area, but, you know, in those restaurants when they had a lot of time before takeoffs, so they'd be in there talking about things. Um, Upon half a dozen or so occasions, I connected to the public unsecured network, and this has been several years ago. They might have changed it since then, but I could clearly see on the, you know, on the network, I could look and see through my computer network traffic using freeware that other people can easily use also. And I could see, I could tell which data computers on that network were theirs uh, and see that they were not using a VPN or any other method to encrypt the data as it was being transferred, as it was being transmitted through the network. If I had been malicious, I could have been intercepting that data and collecting it. It would not have left a trail. It wouldn't have left any indication that it had been taken. And I wondered if they had the data encrypted on their hard drive then. You know, that was another possibility through those connections that data might be accessible on their hard drive. I also saw many times that they charged their computers and phones using the many public USB ports, charging ports in the airports. Now, what if those USB ports had data skimmers within them? It's really hard to see the USB uh, port skimmers. They aren't as obvious as, you know, those that credit card skimmers use, a lot of times you can kind of tell that those are there if you wiggle it and so on. But with the USB port data skimmers, those are really hard to tell they're even there. So you'll just, you know, plug in your computer, your phone and start charging it. And while you're charging it, all your data is being sucked out of it by the skimmer. And that's how data can get accessed by others as well. It just simply would not be recognizable by most folks. And on the planes, oh my gosh, I saw more than one of them with the information, sometimes very sensitive, on their screens. Large 
readily visible, making it easy for others sitting close by and walking by them to read what was on the screen. You know, just think about it. You could so quickly and easily take a video or a photo of the information. So many opportunities to collect without leaving any evidence of doing so. You would never be able to tell somebody did this to collect data and information from those with highly sensitive documents. So keep this in mind and consider, does this type of situation also relate to the Dobbs draft decision leak? Is it not necessarily someone was malicious and gave that data to reporters? I mean, overwhelmingly, it seems like those reporting on this have been looking for someone who knowingly and purposefully with some type of malicious intent, actually gave a copy of that draft Dobbs decision to someone in the press. However, this assumption could not be substantiated with any facts during the months-long investigation, right? We need to consider all possibilities. How tech-savvy is Alito? How tech-savvy are the 82 people who were confirmed to have access to that draft, I believe there are a large portion of our lawmakers and their staff who simply and probably mostly unknowingly use their computing devices in unsecure ways, like those lawmakers who I saw during my many trips to and from D.C. a few years ago. Someone may have seen an opportunity to capture during a public Wi-Fi transmission, the Dobbs decision draft. Or they may have used a USB port skimmer to collect the data from one or more of those with digital copies of the draft. In such cases, there would be no digital trails to indicate the exfiltration. We don't require all the lawmakers to participate in cybersecurity and privacy training. Why don't we? I mean, if we care about national security and protecting sensitive information, doesn't it seem like a logical action to take? Lawmakers are always criticizing the security of networks and those responsible for securing the networks, but they also need to consider that they too need to be aware of how to use their own computing devices in a secure manner. Ultimately, I think a lack of security practices like I just described could very easily have resulted in someone taking the Dobbs draft and leaving no trail behind, possibly from unsecure practices by Alito or maybe the unsecure practices of one of the other Supreme Court judges and or one of the other 82, 83 people with access. It seems very likely that lack of secure practices may have left the draft Dobbs decision open and available to any number of those 83 people who had access to making the draft available to anyone in any of these types of decisions with the absence of effectively securing the document. So I'm curious, what do you think about this? Do you have other theories? Do you have other scenarios that you think might have been actually what was the case for this type of situation? Okay, so right now, oh, I have so many questions to go over. I know I'm going to not get to them all because we're already coming up on a break from our sponsors. So when we come back, I'm going to try to get to as many of them as possible. But I do like to delve into the details like I just did here. But right now, it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And today, I'm just answering a wide range of listener and reader questions. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. Contact me with your questions and comments about this show and also... Uh, provide any topic suggestions for future shows. You can use my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and you can also go through my PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com website. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and today I'm answering a really wide range of questions. So I'm flipping through here about 20 pages of questions. Here's one that I think is another really important one to answer. I do, I've been doing a lot of work with Internet of Things or IoT devices since around 2007, 2009. And, you know, I've been part of the NIST Internet of Things cybersecurity development team for three years. So this is a topic that I really look at a lot. Now, I have a great question from Jay. Jay sent me a question saying, why are location trackers such as Apple AirTag, Tile, and so on bad from a privacy perspective? They are not even sending any personal information. They're just sending locations. Should they be outlawed if they are actually bad? I don't know if he meant that in a facetious way or not, but, you know, it's a great question. So there's not a simplistic answer to uh, these questions. However, I want you to consider some of the ways in which these trackers have been being used. And I'll start right here again in my hometown of Des Moines, Iowa. In late January in our greater Des Moines, Iowa area, there was a well-known metro restaurant and bar owner who was arrested again. He had been arrested for the same thing before. And he was charged with more counts of stalking a woman using a digital locator device he hid in her car. They didn't say if it was Tile or Apple AirTag, but they described it in a way it was it was like those. And another Metro bar owner was also arrested in the case. Why? Because he was keeping the woman distracted while the bar owner attached the digital tracker to the victim's car where it was parked outside. This is at least the third set of persons in separate events stalking and targeting 
different victims that I've seen just here in central Iowa reported in just the eight last eight months or so. Now, in this case, the stalker had easy access to plant a tracker on the targeted victim in her car, which she probably was able to tell where she parked quite easily with all the surveillance cameras, right? The security cameras to know you know, what her car was like and where it was. And it was especially easy when he had his buddy working in cahoots with him to keep his targeted victim busy while he was planting the tracking device. This is not unique to Iowa, not at all. This is going on throughout the entire United States. It's going on throughout the world. If you're in other country and you're th- you know you're thinking, "Oh my gosh, what's going on in the US?" This is happening probably in your country too. I discussed using IoT types of devices, again, Internet of Things, uh, smart, another word for it, smart devices. I've discussed this uh, about using them to stalk targeted victims on my show before with Adam Dodge. And if you look back at my May 2022 episode of the show, go listen to that. I get he gets Adam describes some great details about it. He's an attorney out in um, I think the Silicon Valley area, maybe around San Francisco. Um, anyway, he describes many different cases. So go go to the link to that episode on my show page and listen to it. He can tell you a lot of other examples. These tiny trackers are widely being used to keep track of people and to be you know, able to know where they are located. If they're being used maliciously, they're being used by criminals then to track them down, often to physically harm them. So, Jay, is the answer to your question, should these devices be outlawed? Is that answer yes? Well, no, I do not believe we should take that leap. These little devices are very helpful for finding things. You know, the the purpose was to find misplaced items, right, originally, to find misplaced keys, to find where luggage ended up in a different city from where it was supposed to go to help protective oversight of small children um, and those who might, you know, have developmental um, issues or maybe those with dementia or Alzheimer's or other situations where persons may need help with locations and maybe helping them to find them to get them back to their homes and other valid reasons. So there's there are many other purposes. What is needed, though is improved engineering of security and privacy controls within the trackers themselves, and then also having manufacturers to provide training and other non-technical information to help the device users to understand how to not only securely use the trackers, but also how to identify when and where such trackers are in use. We have to stop thinking about, you know, these tiny devices as, oh, well, this is just the way they work, so we should either outlaw them or, you know, not use them or whatever. Um, let's start thinking like an engineer. I, I started my career as a systems engineer, but, you know, all types of engineers, you have to think about how, a product needs to be changed or how it can be improved when you experience problems. So IoT products must be engineered with privacy and cybersecurity controls built in and with accompanying non-technical capabilities for those using the devices with the potential for doing great things and making life easier with IoT products, I mean, that's significant. I recognize that. When I point out risk, I'm not doing it because I'm against IoT products. I'm for IoT products that are beneficial and secure and protect your privacy. You need all of that to make them the best types of products possible. But you also have to consider the risks. 
So design and engineer the devices and the associated components. Those would be the apps, the controllers, the IoT cloud services, et cetera, the the Wi-Fi networks that they're attached to and so on. Make sure that you establish how those are engineered to connect to all those things in a way to mitigate the risks as much as possible and to help raise awareness by those using them by providing them with training and instructions and and other types of of maybe supplemental types of products. And it will make the IoT products that much more valuable. Many, including somewhat surprisingly, that I've heard when they are talking about these issues, and many of them are even privacy lawyers, they say, well, that's just how those trackers work. That's just an inherent risk in tracking devices. Well, no, it's an inherent risk in how the current engineered version of that tracking device is made, but let's look at how we engineer it differently to improve upon it. We can't just accept it and say that's the way we have to use it because that's the way it's currently built. We have to have continuous improvement for all types of IoT products, and that includes continuous improvement of security and privacy. Everyone needs to put on their engineer's hat when considering privacy, cybersecurity, and the design of location trackers and for all other IoT devices. So right now I'm going to put on my engineer's hat. It's on. And I'm going to ask, how can these location trackers be engineered to make them safer, to protect the privacy of those against whom they're used for nefarious reasons, while also keeping the utility and the value of the original purpose to be able to locate an object or a person knowingly in a way that's not infringing on their privacy. Okay, so here's... Let's start brainstorming. Here's one idea. If the trackers are being placed on or in cars, they're also being placed in purses, in pockets, and in other types of objects without you know, the, the individual who's wearing those things or carrying those things, writing in those things in a way that they don't notice them, if they're being used by criminals and other types of people with malicious intent who would put them there, then that means the device is going to be comparatively close to the targeted victim in such circumstances, right? What if the manufacturers built the devices, and this is the beginning of brainstorming, so you always have to start somewhere. So I'm sure you'll pick this apart, but that's okay. This is going to get the conversation started. What if... They built those devices so they would make some time type of occasional sound, like a chirping sound or a beep every two or three seconds or so. You know, kind of like how you can tell when your fire and smoke detectors are running low on batteries. That could then alert a potential victim to the fact that a tracker has been planted somewhere on them or on their property, right? So that's one option. Let's think. What are some other options? What? Okay, so what if you don't like that idea? Well, okay, what if there's a way to prevent the IoT tracking devices from, you know, being uh, activated when they're in certain places? What if the manufacturer actually created a type of Faraday bag and provided it along with, the tracking devices that that could be engineered to disable the chirping sound. Let's say we have that chirping sound built in there, because I kind of like that idea, but you might not want that chirping sound all the time, right? Well, what if you could have like a Faraday bag constructed to, to put the device into, and it would make it, you know, the chirping sound go away? Um that would make it really hard for the stalker to use it. You'd want to make that bag so that it was prominent enough that it would provide some sort of apparent visual clue to the tracking device 
you know, that's within it. Because, you know, the the stalkers are going to try to use that to their own benefit. But if we made that Faraday bag such that it would be hard then for them to surreptitiously plant it on their victim, then it would be less likely to be used in that way. Maybe also the tracking device manufacturer could sell perhaps purses or pocket liners, whatever, that would um, then actually be able to disable tracking devices if they happen to be put into those locations, right? This is what we have to start doing, just brainstorming on ways to improve what's a useful device and make it even more valuable by including security and privacy uh, protections. And, And the possibilities go on. The main point is engineers need to create ways to make these location trackers more secure and to provide ways to protect privacy. Instead of people just saying, well, that's just how they work, who then typically move on to wanting to create laws and regulations to punish misuse, which doesn't stop the risk from being exploited in the first place. Of course, the laws would provide some sort of legal recourse after the fact, but you know, I'd much rather create a securable location device in addition to any new laws and not just depend upon laws to punish the attacker after the attack has already occurred and damage been done. A securable location tracker that has options, features, and non-technical advice, instructions, and other information from the manufacturer to prevent such targeted assaults to begin with while keeping the intended utility of the device, being proactive to protect and try to prevent crimes instead of only depending on law to deal with assaults after the crimes. So I'm curious, hopefully this got some of you thinking of some other ideas. You know, what other ideas do you have? Go ahead and pass them along. I'd love to see them. Okay, next question. Oh, this is from one of my um, longtime tips uh, tips readers and also uh, who listens to my show. Um, and he calls himself Frustrated Marty. Um, Frustrated Marty sent me some questions about stopping spam from coming into his inbox. So thank you, Marty. So Marty's first question is, he says that he uses the AOL spam blocker to try to keep all that spam out of his inbox. He says he gets, you know, over 100 a day. But every spam that he's getting that is not blocked has an email address slightly different than the next. So, you know, he says that the way his AOL spam blocker is working, it's just not effective. What else can he do? Well, spam senders are definitely finding new ways to get around spam blockers and spam filters and they are generating unique email addresses for each of their millions of spam messages sent often by making the email addresses long and changing just one character at a time within each of the email addresses to generate many many email addresses so I want to just describe to you how many this is consider this if the spammers used emails with 29 characters, which is not that uncommon. My own email address has 29 characters in addition to the at sign and the period. The spammers, if they're, they're going to use 29 characters, the spammers have 10 numeric characters or, or 9 numeric, yeah, 10 with the zero, numeric characters to deal with, to work with. They have 26 English language alpha characters. And let's say they're also going to include 10 special symbols. So let's say they have 46 different characters to choose from. With 46 unique characters building a 29-character email address, this would, let's do the math here. Let's compute this. And if I'm doing my math correctly, You could use all of those to create over 150 octodecillion, 
50 octodecillion, or that's a 1, 5, followed by 58 zeros. You could create 100, over 150 octodecillion different permutations, different email addresses. That's how they get all those different email addresses. Just think about that. Write that number down. Write all those zeros out. It'll blow your mind how big that is. I did that because I wanted to, to see it, and it blew my mind. And I'm a, I have a degree in math. So anyway, that's a whole lot of spam messages, a large portion of which are phishing messages that are trying to trick you into you know, giving away your own data. Spam blockers that instead of looking at um, the email address, look instead at the IP address and put filters on that. That's another way that you can make your spam blockers more successful. Now, if you're, you're asking or you're using a spam blocker that's using IP addresses instead of email addresses, make sure that the IP address spam blocking is through the use of the host ID portion of the IP address and not the network ID portion, which often engulfs a really wide number of email addresses, including many that you may not want to block. Now, Marty had another question, and he also described receiving an email message spoofing the email address of one of his acquaintances. The message described a problem that the acquaintance said that they were having purchasing a gift card from Amazon for her niece's birthday. And it was asking Marty to purchase it for her. And then the acquaintance said that that she would send the niece's address to him. And then the, the acquaintance would repay Marty. Uh, I think I got that right. Anyway, she was wanting Marty to buy the the uh, card, the gift card for her niece instead of her, and she'd repay him, basically. Marty wisely contacted his acquaintance immediately by phone, directly, and suggested that she change her password to her email address or even get a different email address. And Marty indicated he also received the exact same email message with the exact same request from a different acquaintance's email address. So Marty's question to me for this situation is, who should he report this to? Is this a typical phishing event? And what should he do to keep this from happening to him and others? So let's start with reporting it. You can report from anywhere in the world this type of situation to the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, at their site, and it's reportfraud.ftc.gov. You can forward the email message to the FTC Anti-Phishing Working Group, and you can use this email address, reportfishing at apwg.org. I know some of you out there are saying, oh, but what if it's a spoofed email address? Yeah, yeah, I get that. But that's the one that they're using. So that's where you would forward it to. You can also report from anywhere in the world to eConsumer.gov. They have a section for both spam and also for imposter scams uh, such as this. And it's fairly easy to spoof email addresses. However, there are now tools available that can help identify and stop such spoofed mail email from getting uh, into your inbox. So Gmail and other email services providers, along with a growing number of spam blocking tools, vendors offer sender policy framework or SPF, domain keys, identified mail, DKIM, domain-based message authentication reporting and conformance, DMARC, authentication to verify email messages are authenticated as not having been spoofed. So ask your email service provider if they offer SPF, DKIM, and or DMARC capabilities to keep spoofed email from getting into your inbox. Remember those initialisms, SPF, DKIM, DMARC. Good luck, Marty. Thank you for listening and being a privacy professor, tips subscriber. Please let me know if you have any other questions about this. Now, we're running 
close to the end of the show already. Oh, gosh. Well, I had some other questions about OpenAI uh, tool chat GPT. I'll have to f- answer that in another one. Maybe in my tips, I'll answer that. Um, I also had one about smart jewelry, another IoT question. I also had one of uh, using the the art. So anyway, I have more. I'll have to hit those, um, you know, on another day at another time. But today, I answered a, a wide range of security and pro- privacy questions from listeners. Not a whole lot of them, but they were certainly uh, had covered a wide range of issues. Um, I hope you found the information interesting and or useful. Did they pique your interest? Did you have any additional questions that you'd like to hear me or perhaps a guest to my show answer? Please send them in. As you can tell, I love getting your questions. I love helping you understand these issues better. And I may cover them in an upcoming episode or in the monthly tips that I publish, a blog post, or even in one of my upcoming books. I am going to have a book coming out this year. You can contact me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, be sure to tune in to my March show when Kathy Waters, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Advocating Against Romance Scammers, or AARS for short, will be my guest. And she's going to bring with her Brian Denny. He's a co-founder of AARS. And he's also an identity theft victim whose actual image and personal information has been used many times in these romance scams. So listen in for that one. Now, if you cannot make our scheduled debut show each month, you will be able to listen to all of the recordings. And you can find recordings of all my past shows on your favorite news app, in addition to the voiceamerica.com business channel website. You can also visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor. I need to put a few more of my videos out there, but uh, there's one out there that talks about the largest um, lottery fraud case in history, and that happened you know, right here and was prosecuted right here in Iowa. So that's very interesting. That's one of my most popular ones. Until our next show, ask those who you do business with and who you work for, are they doing all they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them? Um, Also, make sure when you're purchasing IoT devices, see what types of capabilities that they have built into those they should be building them in ask what kind of training they are providing to them when you're using email know the signs of what could be a scammed um, or a spoofed email address keep all these things in mind let me know what you're encountering let me know your question any questions you have be privacy aware in the month ahead bye for now you for tuning in this week data security and privacy with the privacy professor can be heard live the first saturday of each month at 11 a.m eastern time 8 a.m pacific time on the voice america business channel until next time stay safe <laughs>